Fear is a big thing, I think. We may not know it or feel it on a day-to-day, but psychologically, I I think fear is a massive thing for folks, and the Bible talks about that a lot. One of the main things the Bible talks about when it comes to fear is no fear of death. Right? Death has nothing on us. It's not a big deal. Ushers us into the kingdom. We see Jesus face to face. We're his forever. And what's wrong with that? So someone asked a question once. How would you live if you couldn't die? You see, that's the natural question that should follow the reality that we can't die. So if you can't die, not afraid of death, how would you live? I think that's profound. It's a little difficult because then we have to start kind of getting real with how we are living. But uh, love those songs. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for causing us to see your beauty and our sin. Thank you for granting us repentance. Thank you for saving us. Father, as we're together here this morning, I pray that your spirit would be active and working and you would grant repentance where needed. Um, Help us see our lives for what they are. Give us a vision for what they might be. I just pray that you would work. And Father, if there are those here today that don't know you in a saving way, I pray that you would save today. So thank you. Um, I pray you would guard me from error. If I speak incorrectly, I pray that these wonderful folks would not hear it. I just pray that uh, you would work here. Thank you so much for all you are to us in Jesus. Amen. Oh, I lost my mic. I don't know exactly how this is supposed to work. All right. So, I want to talk with you about a problem I've been having. (laughs) I have lots of problems. In the last few years, I've actually been having a problem. Does this go on? Cool. I might have to pull out my glasses. Anyway, um, it seems like the older I get... Um, watching my children grow up and watching them have children of their own, watching my mother age. She's 90 now. And I feel the reality of my own aging. Seems like I'm struggling in ways that I've never really struggled before. I'm struggling with what it means to live for Christ. I'm struggling with what it really means to walk by faith. I'm struggling with what it means to end well. 
I'm struggling with what it means to be a faithful disciple to the end. One of the reasons I'm struggling with this is because I see over and over and over again, as folks age, they actually deteriorate in their faith. They don't increase in their faith. In fact, I'm guessing this is the norm. They get hardened to the Spirit's movement. They become conservative. They become unwilling to change and adapt and go where God wants them to go and do what God wants them to do. They just, I'm old now. I, uh, you know, leave that to the younger people as if, <laughs> if they should, st- I don't know scares me to death. So I'm struggling. Now I know whenever I talk to folks about that, one of the common defensive responses is, you know, because this is a big deal. To me, this is a massive deal. I'm suggesting that it might be or should be for everybody. I mean, as we age, I mean, think about this logically. As we age and we've been walking with Christ longer, and the Spirit has been in us, developing us. We've grown closer to Christ, supposedly, spent hours and decades in prayer, have a vision for the kingdom, and we see that the things of this world really aren't what they're cracked up to be. Well, doesn't that mean that as we age, our lives should be all about the kingdom because that's the direction that sanctification takes us. I mean, we should be we should be the ones that just exude what it means to savor Christ and live for him. We should be as we age, we should be the ones that set the example of what it means to give everything for the kingdom. I mean, that to me makes perfect sense. That's not what I'm seeing generally. It scares me. Is that me? Will that be me? <laughs> so one of the one of the responses I get as I try to, you know, voice this dilemma that I have and is that um, you know shouldn't be so bent out of shape about this. You know, you're a Christian, right? Yep. Well, then don't don't be so excited about all this. Just take it easy. I mean, I don't I don't worry about all that stuff. I, you know, I just get on with life. Jesus is mine. I'm, you know, I'm get on with life. Maybe you're concerned that you're actually not saved. And so by increasing your service, by, you know, you're, you're trying to earn your salvation. And I, I get it. Uh, that's not the case. That's not, that's not where I'm at. My only hope of being forgiven and having peace with God is not dependent on me at all. It's on, it's on the 
the sacrificial death and resurrection and shed blood of Jesus on the cross, when he did that, he took my place. He became my substitute for God, and I know that my only hope is Jesus. Through faith alone, I'm connected to his sacrifice. Through faith in his life, through, through faith, his life is my life. His death is my death. His victory is my victory. It's all about Jesus. He dies, I live. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes that, born again, eternal life. The question is not, how can I be saved? The question I'm asking is, what type of life naturally flows from this salvation? It's not a, how must I live? It's not a, do this and don't do that. It's not, that's not it. Well, As a born-again believer, what should my response be to that? It's nothing to do with legalism or working for my salvation. It's just the magnificent glory of a risen Christ on my behalf should evoke some kind of change. What is that? I've also been struggling uh, with this because <laughs> as I read the Bible, I find that what it tells me about this is not at all what's comfortable. This is not, and it's like, it, it, this is not easy stuff. And so I, I just want to be the right, I want to respond rightly. So the question is, what uh, must the reality of Christ in me change me here and now, and to what extent? Does it make any sense that we could actually trust God for the salvation of our eternal soul and then not trust him in every other aspect of life? To me, that, that's, that's insanity, right? So I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, commit my soul to the one who took my place before God and absorbed the judgment that I deserve, yet I live like everybody else? How can that be? Well, it can't. So I want to talk about a couple things here. <laughs> One is, you know, the biblical, a few biblical passages that speak to this issue. And then one kind of idea as to why this is so difficult. And then I want to read a passage of Scripture that compares two folks. One who gets it one who doesn't get it. So, um, I don't mean to just, you know, jump from passage to passage here. That's not good expositional preaching. Nonetheless, that's what's going to happen. Um, so, the first passage I'd like to read it comes from Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. These are all familiar, I think, but sometimes I think they're so demanding 
quote-unquote demanding that we just kind of ignore them and let them go and look to, to something easier. So the kingdom of heaven, Matthew thirteen forty four. the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That does not mean we buy our salvation. What it means is that the kingdom of heaven, it means that our salvation is worth everything. Everything we have, everything we possess, Everything we feel is valuable all of a sudden holds no value because the kingdom of heaven is in front of us. That's pretty daunting. Luke 14.33 So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Most people, I think, because I've heard this, I've done this probably, said, no, 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 this isn't quite right. The actual translation should be, um, anyone who is not willing to renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a great way of spinning that, right? But that's absolutely not what it says. So again, we have this comparison between the things that this world says are valuable and the television programs us to think are valuable and every outlet we can connect with says this is what's valuable. It's saying all of that needs to go. And that's where we need to be going if we're going to follow Christ. I know that following Christ is a process sanctification, right? But some of these statements are unbelievably absolute. Luke 9:57. So this is Jesus again. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, this is 957 through 62. uh, Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You should know that, I think is what he's saying to this person. Then he said to another, follow me. But that person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at home. And then Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow, no one who commits to this course of action and then looks back is fit for the kingdom. 
Now again, this passage is so forceful, I think our knee-jerk reaction is to say that, that can't be what he actually means here. Isn't it the responsible thing to go bury my father before I commit my life? I'll just leave that one. <laughs> I think the point that he's making here is a little bigger than that, though. The point is, if God calls you, you need to go. You need to go. There is no greater obligation than following Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else. And that's probably why he used these examples. Bury my father, go say goodbye to my family. Those are, you know, very, very logically speaking, appropriate things to do. And what Jesus is saying, there is nothing greater than your commitment to me. Matthew 13, um, 1 through 9, and then 18 through 23. I know there's a lot of verses, so I'll read fast. Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and then 18 through 23. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, and here's the parable of the sower, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured the seed. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up, and since they had no soil, then when the sun came up, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. If you have ears to hear this, understand. So then in verse 18, Jesus deciphers this. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what was just sown along the path, the path that has no soil. So there are folks that hear the gospel and it just makes no sense. That's those folks. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, endures for a while, and then when he must stand for his faith, when he faces tribulation or persecution, he falls away. So those are folks that are ashamed of the gospel. So when they hear it initially and they Sounds good to me. Well, hang on. Is it a part of you? Or when you feel oppression, will you fall away? So there, it looks like you came to life. No fruit. No, no, no root. It doesn't work. 
As for those who, uh, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. These folks are captured by the things of this world. These are the folks that can fit in, can make it sound good, can be faithful Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but in the end, God is not their God. Something else is. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields One case a hundredfold, other sixty, another thirty. The thing is, you can't be this last person. You can't be this fruitful person if you don't understand the gospel. That was the first one, right? If you don't understand the gospel. I mean, by definition, you can't be this last one if you are the first three. So if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't get it, if it doesn't work, that you can't be the last one. If you... If the gospel is not so great that you stand up to challenge, to persecution, you can't be the last one. That's the second person. I mean, it's not, it's not so beautiful in you that you're willing to stand. And then you can't be the last one if you have another God. If riches are your God, if... Many things. You, you, you can't bear fruit. You can't be that person at some point. The other things win. The other way, another way to look at this is if you're born again and growing, something's happening in you. I don't want to put, when you talk about bearing fruit, I don't want to necessarily say this is exactly what that means. We all have different gifts and abilities and talents, but there must be fruit here someplace. If there's no fruit, we're in danger. So that was Jesus, all those passages. Paul um, jumped in on this a lot. So there's just three short passages where Paul jumps in. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, this is really familiar. This was Paul's disposition. So as, as Paul grew over time, this is the point that he came to. This is where he was moving toward. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do whatever you do for the glory of God. That's a big, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I think that's a tough one. We tend to separate our lives into two pieces, right? There's this sacred piece. That's what we're doing here today. We show up to church, this is God's. We pray with a friend, that's spiritual, right? And when we come to church, we, be, we become all spiritual too. We're, our, we're loving and considerate and introspective, you know. So, so this, this belongs to God, but the question is not whether this belongs to God. The question is whether my workplace belongs to God. My finances belong to God. Other things, everything else belongs to God. Whatever you do. So we separate these things. We got the spiritual and we got the secular, and that helps us live these lives. 
when the reality is God should own all of that. Paul to the church in Ephesians said this, Ephesians 5.5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous and, and then an, an idolater, everyone who is greedy for something other than God has, has an idol, has no inheritance in the kingdom of in the kingdom of Christ and God. <laughs> oh, man, that's a tough one. And the last one, Acts twenty twenty four. I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's pretty radical, right? All of this, pretty radical. But see, here's the point. I think this is the normal Christian life. Not, not what you, not what other Christians are doing, what the Bible says. This is where we should be going. This is normal. If you have new hearts and a new vision, this is where we should be going. So why is this so difficult? Well, sometimes I think we're just unwilling to hear the truth of this, right? That the kingdom should be so glorious, everything else we tend to grab onto just fades away. That's putting it mildly. Then you get down to specifics. And we come to that, you know, if we have no fear of death, how should we be living type question. Anyway. So there's a massive spiritual battle going on here for our souls. There are tons of difficulties. One of the difficulties is that walking the narrow path can seem lonely. Now it's not, it shouldn't be, but you cannot look around for other people that are giving everything for the cause of Christ and then feel comfort there. I mean, maybe, maybe, but at the end of the day, it is you that has to walk that path. Your friend cannot walk it for you. You must walk it. I go to a great church in the Twin Cities. Wonderful church, great teaching mature Christians who live for the kingdom. That's fantastic. I can see this modeled in front of me. So it's good. It's all good. They can't walk this path for me. I must be the one through the power of the Holy Spirit to say I'm going to leave this idol and cling to Christ. Or I'm going to downsize the retirement home I've always dreamed of in order to give $100,000 to the kingdom. I must be the one to do that. Not my friends. So I want to give you an example here of Paul. Uh, my wife and I were having our devotions the other day and uh, this popped up and I, like, I had never seen this before. So I just want to share it with you. We all know about Paul, right? Amazing, amazing monster of the faith. 
planting churches, <laughs> suffering all the way along, just beaten to a pulp, living for Jesus, planting churches, writing letters. So now the end is close. His final letter is to Timothy, Second Timothy. There's a passage in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. Blew me away. So, Paul is now under Roman guard. He sees the end coming. Um, the body of Christ has grown such that it's a real thing, and the Romans are just not going to stand for it. And so Paul is one of those that is going to die. So in the Roman world, Paul was a Roman citizen, right? They have a process. They had a process just like we do. They had a, a multi-appearance process before the court, if you will. So here's what he said. At my first defense... In my first hearing, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued. I don't know that we're going to be beheaded for the sake of the gospel, but the point is, after all of this, Paul is standing there alone. We will need to follow. I don't know if you folks sing that song anymore. We don't sing it much, though none go with me, yet I will follow that is really the way it works. God has a path for you. No one can walk that path for you. Now, a great church can support you and pray for you and be alongside you, and that's all good. But at some point, the rubber is going to hit the road, and you are going to have to be the one moving forward. All right. So this last passage of scripture, I kind of saw this one in a new way too. I, I've heard, I've read this before, but I haven't seen it like this until relatively recently. It's found in John 12, and it it it's a picture of one person who gets it, one person who doesn't. So one of the messages that the Bible seems to drive home over and over and over again is that Jesus will be your great treasure or something else will be. There's no neutral ground here. And you can't make Jesus your treasure. You must be born again. You must see it that way. Anyway, John 12 Verses 1 through 6. So, this event takes place right after Jesus resurrected Lazarus. 
I don't know if you're a biblical scholar or <laughs> study much, but this event, this event of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, massive. This was not like Jesus turning water into wine. This was a different deal. Jesus had been wandering the countryside and healing people and spreading the message and Everybody knew who this guy was. Some hated him, some loved him, but everybody knew. And now, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was a local. This was not an insignificant event. This was a big deal. This was not a secret event. This was a decisive, game-changing event. This is that event that basically... Turn the corner for Jesus. You were either with him or you were not. And if you were not, the evidence of his being the Messiah was so strong, we have to get rid of him because we just can't beat him anymore. All on the resurrection of Lazarus. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine following Jesus and watching him? And, and maybe, you know, you're convinced, but of course there's the opposition, and all of a sudden this happens? Now there's no debate. There's no questions here. Anyway, so John 12, 1 through 6. Six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the point, everybody want, the author wants everybody to know, you know, the one that was raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served. And Lazarus, again, was one of those reclining at table. Lazarus was there. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I just think that's an amazing sentence. There's something going on there, right? Mary's sacrifice makes the whole house smell good. But Judas, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Crazy, right? Judas was there. Judas was there when Lazarus came back to life. <laughs> so there's a great contrast here between Mary and her complete devotion to Jesus and Judas and his inability to see Jesus for who he was. For Mary, there was no priority list. Jesus was that singular focus that gave everything else value. I'm guessing Judas would have advocated for a balanced life approach, right? All things in moderation, garbage. 
That's probably what Judas, that's his philosophy of life. There's room for everything as long as you don't get carried away with anything unless, of course, that one big thing comes along. Right? Now, for Mary, it was Jesus. That's the big thing she's going to grab onto. We know what it was for Judas. Mary didn't think twice about anointing Jesus, get this, with a perfume that would have cost the average person a year's income. Can you imagine? I mean, really, can you imagine? I don't know how much you make in a year. Some of you may not make anything, but others do. (laughs) A year's income. Doesn't matter. This is Jesus we're talking about. And Judas was appalled. He categorized Mary's act as unthinkable and a missed opportunity for him to profit. Judas had no idea what was going on here. Couldn't see it. The problem with a balanced life approach is that it's not balanced at all. In the end, we're still driven by a supreme value that creates one's loyalties and determines one's actions. For Judas, this supreme value was himself, so his attraction to money is understandable. For Mary, her supreme value was Jesus, so her love-at-all-cost action is also understandable. I think God will call us to this point. God will call everyone to this point. This is who I am. This is who I am for you. Is there a price you are unwilling to pay? And so Brutus, Judas was brought to this point, and when it's a year's income, the switch flipped, and he is out. I can't, this, I can't do it. So Judas is one of these guys that gets along, right? He's a disciple. He's there. This is too much. He's out. Two thoughts here. One, the gospel should create a longing to embrace Jesus as our supreme value like Mary did. The other thought, we can be very close to the truth and not get it. We can see evidence of the gospel in the lives of those around us and we can walk in as in a Christian way and we can live in the context of the church while still being ruled by earthly enticements like Judas was. So I'd like you to consider one more thing. Prayerfully this. I'd like you to consider the possibility that if there is no longing in you to live this way, with Jesus as your treasure, everything else, subjection under, under subjection to his will, if there is no real calling in your life, if you can't see that, doesn't mean you can do it, right? <laughs> That's a kind of a different issue, the struggle. But if there's no longing for that, if there's no vision for that, if you have no 
desire to demonstrate the value of Jesus, the one who died for you in your life, maybe you haven't seen him in a saving way. I'm not saying that in a, in a condemning fashion at all, but maybe, maybe you haven't seen him in a saving way. Maybe you're like Judas. You can hang around and fit in and go with the flow and even consider be considered a disciple, but the reality is that you are captured by something else, like money or toys or fishing or sex or your house or your job or politics, whatever. Something else is there. This was, this was me. This was me. I was born and raised in a Christian church. Good church. Little church. Southwestern Minnesota. Farm community. I believed, I believed that Jesus Christ was the only way to God. Intellectually. I, I, I get it. I get it. Yes, that is true. But he wasn't mine. I was a part of all of the, you know, we, I don't know if you have Youth for Christ anymore, but that was a big deal in southwestern Minnesota. I toured with them, national, you know, singing group, and we gave testimonies and wandered the country. He wasn't mine. I went to two different Bible colleges. It wasn't mine. And then he broke through. So... Um, you know, God willing, if you're a believer, if you are walking with Christ, if you see the beauty in those songs, maybe greater than that, if you see the beauty in the saving sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, you know, maybe you have this longing to live in a way that reflects his value. So read. Read the scripture. Find, find it. It's not, it's a radical life. It's an uncomfortable thing where you're depending on Christ for your existence. Um, if none of this appeals to you in any way, you know, I, I just pray that God would grant you faith. That you would see him differently. That he would see your sin and your need for massive salvation. He, he does that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together, for this church for faithfully, um, for, for your word faithfully going forward every week. Thank you so much for the hearts here that see you as amazing, worth everything. I pray that you would grant those folks the faith to pursue you with a radical agenda. And for those here who do not know you the way they should. I pray that you would, in your mercy, open their eyes. Show them how you save. Show them how desperate their need is for the one who saves. So, thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.